welcome to Little Detours with Regina Brett, where we help you create a life you love out of the life you have. Thanks for joining me. I'm your host, Regina Brett. Mansfield Frazier has been called a lot of things in life, a shining light and a street hustler, a big time counterfeiter and a retired outlaw, a winery owner and a community activist. He's also a powerful author and columnist who uses his voice to transform the lives of others, to lift people out of financial poverty and that poverty of spirit that keeps people in bondage long after they're released from prison. Mansfield's life took a series of detours which led him in and out of prison where he wrote the book From Behind the Wall. Mansfield Frazier is a native Clevelander and executive director of Neighborhood Solutions, a nonprofit whose mission is to improve the quality of life for residents of Ward 7, where he lives with his wife, Brenda. He's the general manager of Chateau Huff, a vineyard and winery owned by the nonprofit that trains and employs formerly incarcerated individuals. He's here to talk about second chances and how to give one to yourself. Mansfield, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Regina. Thanks for thinking of me. Oh, you've always been such, to me, a force of... uh, of change and and there's just a joy about you that uh, I wonder how you preserve after all you've been through. Well, you know, life throws you a lot of curves and I think you have to, that kind of thing is foundational. I had a strong foundation that allowed me to weather whatever storms because most of the negative stuff that I got involved with, I did it out of choice. It wasn't out of necessity. I always had options. I was just very angry with society of why I went down that dark path for a number of years. But I had two wonderful parents that gave me confidence that I could do things. And I guess in the main thing is I'm not afraid to fail, but running a business. A lot of people, I talked to a lot of young people, they want to go into some kind of business, but they're afraid of failing. And my answer is don't be afraid of failing because you're going to do it. Get used to, get used to failing. So Mansfield, you said you're not afraid to fail because you're going to do it. When did you learn that that lesson? Oh, I think I was I think I was taught that lesson by my parents. I tell people I was I'm very fortunate. I was born and bred to be success. My father ran a small business. We lived upstairs over it. I saw him being successful my whole life. Him and my mother were great role models. It's funny that as a kid, there were, it was a beer tavern in the inner city. So there were some drunks hanging around. And for a while, until I was about, got to kindergarten, I thought everybody grew up to be a drunk. <laughs> Not looking at my parents. But once I got over that, I'd look around me at what other people were doing and say, hey, I can do that. I, uh, they're both very bright people and they gave me some good genes. And I just look at what other people are doing. And I, and I still have that. So, well, when I started the vineyard, yeah, I can I can learn that. Now, let me go back to high school. You had pretty much things going pretty well. You were going to go to Ohio State. You had a full ride, and then your life took like a Bruce Springsteen song turn. The yes. girlfriend gets pregnant, and you get married at seventeen. At seventeen, because my father was a deacon in church, a mother attended church, and the girl that I married, I was seventeen. She was seventeen, going on forty. But <laughs> yeah. Uh, but my father said, oh, you're going to get married. And, and it's funny because this is in 61. And it was almost like a punishment. Yeah, you got the girl pregnant and you're going to marry her. So it was almost like a punishment. And I didn't have the 
will or heart to say, no, I'm going to go and go away to college. And I remember standing there at the altar of my mother's church, shaking. I was so, I, I was so afraid. But one of the things he knew that I would be, I was eminently equipped to leave, leave the nest when I graduated 18, got a job, and raise a family. There was never any question about, can I do this? It was, it, I knew I could, so did, so did they. They knew I could be, they'd raised me to be successful. So we were, we had a very financially very successful relationship with other stuff that wasn't so successful. So you get out of East Tech High School in 61, and then you end up into a, a foundry, aluminum foundry? And yeah, then- Alcoa. I, the first job I got was at Alcoa Aluminum. And they were, this was like, you know, there's an old story that back in the 50s and the early 60s, you could quit a job in the morning and walk across the street and get another one that afternoon. And, and yeah, jobs were that plentiful. And the foundry was hard, dirty work. And I got a job. I got a job. Of course, my uh, a friend of mine across the street, he said, let's go down there and apply. And they hired us on the spot. But the problem was they get busy and they hire you, but then they lay you off a lot. There's a lot of, until you gain seniority, you get laid off a lot. So I was laid off for about a week and I ran into the same guidance counselor who'd gotten me the full ride to Ohio State. I was picking my wife up from night school and uh, she became an RN, operating room RN. And he told me to go apply at the illuminating company. And I said, what, you crazy. Illuminating company don't hire black people. He just told me, go apply. And so I listened to him, and I did. And I got hired. I didn't know why I got hired, though. What do you mean by that? Well, when John F. Kennedy got elected president, his brother Robert was the attorney general. They picked an industry that they thought should integrate. And their logic was everybody uses public utilities. So that's who we're going to go after first. And they didn't ever make an announcement. They quietly talked to public utility company and said, you're going to do it nicely or we're going to sue you. And but because places like the aluminum company, the gas company, those were lifetime jobs. And the fact was, they were like double prejudice. By that, I mean, they didn't hire blacks except for some scut jobs, some dirty jobs. But they didn't hire whites unless you had a family member. They always hired the sons, daughters, nephews, if you didn't have that kind of family connection, it was very, very hard to get into a public utility job. And so the Kennedys caused, caused that to break up. And I, I never knew what caused it until years later. So, Mansfield, you ended up uh, at the Illuminate Company, Cleveland Electric Illuminating. For about mm-hmm. ten years, and what nine was it years, like? Nine months, eleven days. Oh, there you go. What was it like for you being well, probably one of the few black people that was really kind of ready to rise to some power in there? Well, it was interesting. <laughs> it it was very interesting. I went to work at a shop. There was one black guy. He'd been there forever. He was like a help. He swept up and held a piece of wood when the carpenter was cutting. He uh, he was nearing retirement. And there was like 42 guys. And so I was the young guy that could have a future. And most of the guys that they'd hired out of World War II. So by the 60s, a lot of guys were getting their retirement age. So one of the top jobs as a certified pipe welder opened up. Normally, you work your way up as a helper, grade B, grade A, then you become a skilled craftsman. 
I went from helper to skill crasher because the opportunity was there and none of the other guys wanted it because it was pipe welding, certified pressure pipe welding. You, you see the steam rising up downtown Cleveland out of those steam holes. That means there's a leak in the pipe somewhere. And my job was to go down there and weld and fix it. And it's hot and it's dirty. It's very precise, can be a little bit dangerous. And so they didn't have any choice. I guess I was the only option. And I was very, very good at it. I, I was excellent at it because I was young. I was eager. And one of my boasts was I was the youngest man ever to certify on pressure pipe in the state of Ohio. I was 19. And I was the first black. And the pay was excellent because you worked a lot of overtime. Because you can't shut the steam off during the day because people are freezing in the wintertime. So you have to work weekends and nights to fix the pipes. And I went along well until they started using me to train other new black employees. What had happened was that they were getting pressure from the government. You're not hiring enough blacks. So they started holding classes. They would hire in 25 black guys, pay to train them to learn how to read rulers, do, you know, basic math, the skills they would need, how to use hand tools. Then they would hire them and they would hire 25 guys at the end of the six-week period. They might have two or three left. And so they finally turned to me and asked if I could help. And I told them, well, I can't help as long as you got that scab because it was a non-union guy they brought in to do the work. And I was a union man by then. So eventually, after about a couple of more failures, they asked me to assist with that program. And I got 24 out of the 25 guys through the program. So they thought I was a genius, but I wasn't. So what, what caused you to leave that job? They were having me train people to promote past me. I'd take a white guy, show him stuff to do, then they promote him but wouldn't promote me. And I say, hey, wait a minute. I trained him. I know more than he, he does. And they said, well, yeah, you're the sharpest guy we got. And they used to use me as a supervisor when the supervisor went on vacation. I said, but we can't put you in charge over white guys. So we can't do that. This was in 67. And it was literally soul crushing to me. The one thing my father had not prepared me for was the racism I would meet and encounter outside of the cocoon that he created. In my neighborhood, I was like the prince of the city because you have to understand when you own a tavern right in the middle of the roughest part of the black neighborhood, I thought my father was rich. And comparatively speaking, he was. He was the wealthiest man in the community. Everybody owed him money. You know, I got new swim bicycles. That I used to have to learn how to fight to protect. We'd go to baseball games and have seats on third baseline. He'd take us hunting and fishing and on vacation down to the Kentucky Derby. So I had a charmed life. I was totally unprepared for racism. Now, when I hired in at the illuminating company, guys that I worked with, some of the white guys would throw little jabs at you, and i throw them right back. I actually liked that because I was much quicker. I was so much quicker than they were. I remember talking to my father, and father told me, he said, son, midgets are always going to be pulling at your pants cuffs, so don't worry about it. And so they didn't bother me, and they quit. They soon learned to quit making the racial slurs and innuendos because I would give it back so hard that they, they'd leave me alone. But when the company told me that uh, they they couldn't or wouldn't promote me, it, it set off an anger 
my feeling was you invited me and you hired me. I'm playing the game according to your rules. I'm playing fair. I had a perfect attendance. I got sick right after, about two weeks after I got there, I got tonsillitis and had to be off. Oh God, I hope they don't think I'm just, you know, making this up. I never had another sick day in nine years. I lived close by. So if it was a snowstorm, I could get there and open the shop up. I was what you would consider the perfect employee. And I felt based off of that, that I should have been treated differently. And it was affecting me to the extent that um, my marriage was kind of falling apart anyway, because I got married much too young. But I, I was literally going from being a very happy guy to a very, very miserable guy. It got to the point, uh, the only joy I had, Regina, would be in my basement, all in my .30-06 rifle, and seeing how fast could I work the boat. I, was, I had a rooftop picked out where literally I was going to go on the roof. And I wasn't going to just spray everybody. There were certain guys, when they walked out, I was going to shoot them. But ain't God sent an angel, and my life took another turn. Thank God I didn't. But I was that upset. Well, when you, you, know, when you talk about being soul-crushing, it sounds like it really kind of broke something inside you. You're, you're trying to build this life that everybody seems to want, and then you can't get any higher because you're black. And, and so you ended up taking a really sharp turn in your life. Uh, yeah. People would say to a life of crime, but for you, it didn't seem so much a crime because the system wasn't made for you. Wouldn't let well, you in. That's, oh, so this is how life in this world works. Y'all cheat. So I can cheat too. So I selected what I wanted to do. And I didn't start off counterfeiting credit cards, but after my marriage fell, and I was oh, 27, headed toward 28, and I left town with a with an exotic dancer. <laughs> and... We traveled quite a bit, and we wound up in New York, and that's how I learned to counterfeit uh, credit cards. So you went from stealing them to making them. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Okay. And then it was pretty lucrative until you got caught. Until, well, it was very lucrative, but the thing is, Regina, if you're a professional criminal, career criminal, like I was at this time, it's like being a house painter working off a ladder or a roofer, there's a chance you're going to fall. You try to, yep. I mean, it, it's called occupational hazard, but I always planned for the eventuality. I never got caught. Somebody always told. Like Somebody else would get caught and always tell. So <laughs> you can do it by yourself to a degree, but you really, you work with a crew and somebody on the crew does something stupid. I learned a lot about human nature and how you can't change some people around and make them successful. And a lot, of the, a lot of the crew was getting into too many drugs, which would cause problems. So you made and spent millions. And you once explained, I think, to a, a classroom, you don't know what living is until you're spending someone else's millions. That must have <laughs> felt like a high, a big high. Oh, my God. The, the first time I went into a jewelry store in Las Vegas and uh, spent over $30,000 for a Rolex watch, that was like the biggest high in the world, the biggest kick in the world. Because the guy that sold me the watch, he wasn't getting cheated. He got paid. I got the watch. It was two or three people down the line that the insurance company, Lloyds of London, that's who insured that at the time, that's who was insuring most credit cards. So yeah, to me, it was a victim of crime. Of course it isn't. But I always felt it was one bandit robbing another bandit. 
Credit card companies are brutal. The only people that charge 25% interest is the mafia and, and Visa. <laughs> the only two people that get away with 25%. It's called vigorous when it gets to that level. That's what the mafia charge, quarter on the dollar. So I had no sympathy for the credit card company, none. Well, man, so we're already at the halfway mark, so I just want to pause and thank you for listening to Little Detours with Regina Brett and to our guest, Mansfield Frazier. I know you have many podcast choices to listen to, and I'm just grateful you chose mine. So, Mansfield, the first time you end up in prison, what is it like when that door closes behind you? I, I've heard somebody once say, the only day harder than the day when you go into prison is the day you get out. What is it like the day you go into prison the first time? Uh, you're anxious because you never had the experience before. But once you survey the situation, that anxiousness for me might have lasted two or three days. I dealt with these same guys in my neighborhood growing up. And now if I would have been born in Hunting Valley or Pepper Pike and was a white guy, then I'd have a real problem. But I fit right in. And what happened was because the crime that I'm in prison for, there's a pecking order. If you go for stealing a loaf of bread, you're on the low end of the pecking order. If you go for stealing Rolex watches, you're on the high end of the pecking order. <laughs> and so I love to read. Immediately, I'm in the law library or the book library in the law library. And once you help one guy write a motion that gets him a sentence reduction, and it's easy to do. A lot of them just function illiterate. They start treating you like you're F. Lee Bailey or somebody. So after being there, it's very, very easy. To look a little too easy. Secret Service is the guy are the guys that police credit cards because it's similar to money. Secret Service look out for counterfeit money and counterfeit credit cards. And I said, look, you can't rattle those keys and scare me anymore. You know that, right? You rattling those keys telling me, putting me back in prison like th- throwing Brer Rabbit back in the briar patch, you know. I functioned very well. I ain't trying to stay, but I'm not afraid of it. It was an occupational hazard. And I always knew I wasn't going to be there long. They would threaten you with 20 years. Yeah, get serious. I had a little trick that I played on to uh, keep my sentences short. They want you to tell on somebody. I'll never forget the first time I got busted here in Cleveland. They asked me, what do you know about George George Forbes? I said, all I know is just city councilman. I never met George. I know him now. We're friends now. They wanted me to either tell on something or make something up about George Ford because they didn't like me. I don't know anything about George Ford. I said, but I'll tell you this, those credit cards I make, I make with a machine. Now you lock me up. The machine is still out there and somebody else could be using it, making more credit cards. You really don't want me. You really want that machine. And I said, if you take that machine back to Washington and show your boss, you got the equipment, you'll probably get a promotion. And it worked every time. <laughs> but I always gave them old beat up equipment. I had. I had equipment all over the United States. All right. So your last and longest sentence was 27 months in Ashland, Kentucky. And that's when you really started writing. You got into a prison writers group, you wrote essays, and you turned this into a book. Did you write the book actually while you were in prison? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I wrote it on debt, basically. I was a tutor. I was tutoring math and English. Uh, my math ain't that strong, but I, I, I could stay ahead of the guys I was tutoring anyway, but I was good with English. And there was another counterfeiter. He worked like once a year. He made Social Security checks. A guy out of Louisville, Kentucky. And we would be reading the papers and federal prison, they have newspapers from all over the country. 
because guys are from all over the country. And there was a writer, you probably know the name, William Raspberry. He was oh, a great writer. Yeah, great writer. And he was writing about something about the inner city. And I said, Raspberry don't know what he's talking about. He ain't never lived in the inner city. And so this guy admits, what, you think you can do better? I said, yeah, I think I can. So that's what started. I started writing on the dare. And I tried writing before, a couple of years before. I had gotten me a little condo up in Lake Tahoe that was out of the way, had it furnished. It got me a little computer. And boy, I almost learned to be a writer. And as soon as somebody called me and said, hey, we got something going on down in Los Angeles or Miami or somewhere, I'm on a plane, gone. So I couldn't discipline myself enough absent federal prison. If I had never went to prison, I never would be a writer because I was too undisciplined. So your book ends up being published by Paragon House, uh, New York Publishing, and it's like a big turning point. And tell us about this moment you had when you're getting ready to get out of prison and the prison psychologist comes up and says, well, you're in trouble now. Yeah, when, when a staff member tells you, hey, you're in trouble now, you, what, what, what did I do? And, you know, that's the last thing a, a convict wants to hear is that you're in trouble now. So he just kind of smiles and he said, you're a month short, meaning short, meaning you got a month to go. You know what I'm You're a month short. I said, yeah. He said, you finally got published. I said, yeah. He said, and you're going, uh, you're going to get out and start doing the exact same thing you did to get you here. And I laughed. I said, yeah, I'm a counterfeiter. That's what I do. I said, when you catch me, you can lock me up. And he looked at me and he said, oh, and make everything in your book a damn lie, huh? And just turned on his heels and walked away. And Regina, it hit me like a two by four in the back of the head. He knew exactly what he was doing. And I honestly, I was rooted to the spot. I could not walk. I couldn't move. And for the next three days, three nights, I was walking into people and the walls. I couldn't sleep. And I was transitioning, having to give up who I was and who I was comfortable with. I was very comfortable as a counterfeiter. I had mastered it. I wasn't afraid of prison. It was a great lifestyle. I had to give that up to become what I said I wanted to be. I always did want to be a writer. I was afraid. I was afraid I wouldn't be successful at it. But I knew this stuff. You follow me? And at 51, 52 years old, to make that kind of change when you're in the middle of the stream can be kind of difficult. So after three days, I said, okay. My challenge was, he said, since you're so damn smart, let's see you make make a living and not break the law. And at that point, it's okay. I'm going to make my living as a writer. So what scared you the most? You know, in those three or four days of, of really arm wrestling kind of with life, yeah. what was the fear that really kind of grabbed you the most? Fear of failing. Failing. Fear that I, nobody would want to read me, that the book was a fluke, that I knew about the subject matter for the book. And I was well-read. I followed politics quite a bit. I just didn't know if I had enough general knowledge to um, be successful. And I also knew that I would probably have to go ask for a job again, something I hadn't done in close to over 25 years. That was the main thing. I wasn't into asking nobody for a job because I'd gotten burned that route once before. What's interesting, Mansfield, it sounds like it took more courage to go right than all the counterfeiting and the wild roller coaster life 
that oh yeah oh that would scare most people i think yeah, yeah. You know, they say going to prison is on the, on the trauma scale is right up there with death in the family and stuff like that. But but it's an acquired skill once you learn how to do it. But <laughs> it, but for me, the fear was asking for a job uh, because I know the last time I'd asked for a job, how I'd been treated, and I did know me. I I knew that I would not and could not accept bad treatment. In, in whether it was in a writing environment or, or luminating company, I was a welder, any environment, I'm going to treat people fairly and I'm going to demand fair treatment in return. And so I was very fortunate because when I got home, there was a bail bondsman. He was like a mentor to me, old guy. He used to ride around town in a black Rolls Royce. And he wanted me to write a book about his adventures of his life, which is very interesting. So you have to have a job when you get out of prison to satisfy parole officer. So he gave me a job in his office right on West Third, right across from the Justice Center. And I was writing this book about his life. And I was sending out my resume, sending out, which was, you know, it was kind of a dummy resume. <laughs> but I do have a book. But I thought writing samples would open the door for me, as they should. And one guy... Bless him, Larry Durston. He was at the uh, little weekly, uh, Jim Carney on. Remember Jim Carney? Mm-hmm. I think it might have been a monthly at the time. It was called the Downtown Tab. It was like the scene. And I sent something to him. Never knew who he was. He called me and said, hey, come on over and I can interview you. And I said, well, Larry, the problem is I'm not supposed to leave the office. I'm on parole. <laughs> <laughs> and I was living in the halfway house. And so he came over and interviewed me and he asked what kind of business it was. And I told him about the bail bond business. And he said, that's kind of interesting. Most people don't know about what bail bonds been do. A lot of people use it. So my first article was on the business that I was setting there and I knew it forward and backwards. I, I knew a lot of tricks about the bail bond industry because I used to have to use bail bondsmen to get myself or other people out of jail. In fact, at the time I was training guys to take the bail bond test. And so I wrote the first piece on bail bond business, which kind of comes in handy now because, you know, they're trying to change the rules of bail bonds now because they're keeping people in jail that should be out. And the bail bond industry is the one that's fighting to keep them in because for them, they're an insurance business, actually. So he liked the first piece and they hired me as an associate editor. So you give yourself this second chance and you also, through your book, and your work in the community, you've really taught other people how to give people second chances. I remember reading your book. It was very powerful about how to kind of rebuild your life. And the whole idea of when you leave prison, you know, most people, if you're a convicted felon, it's like a brand you wear the rest of your life. It, sometimes you can't vote, you you know, on a job application. No, not true. You can vote. Well, you can now. But I mean, that's... Well, no, you always could in Ohio. Oh, in Ohio. But there's some always states where you could. Different, different states, like yeah. Florida... Southern right. states, because it's used as a mechanism to stop blacks from voting. Yes, exactly. So I wonder, Mansfield, the idea of second chances. What do you say to people out in that community that maybe you know have jobs that, but they're not ready to hire somebody that's been in prison? How do you convince them that you got to give people a second chance? That's a tough one. It, there's two sides to the coin. One, you have to get the person ready to take advantage of this chance. And that's the side that we work on. Then you have to convince their employer that it's worth their while. Well, 
what happens is when the economy is good and jobs are plentiful and workers are short, employers are more willing to take a chance. It's purely economics. It's not that I can convince somebody to take a chance on a formerly incarcerated person. If they've got a bunch of choices, they're not going to choose. And I'll give you an example. During the 2000 census, 20 years ago, Jane Campbell had started a reentry committee and I was serving on it. The law was from Washington that formerly incarcerated people could work taking during the census because actually it was Bush, Bush II, who made the strongest second chance law that our country has. It was done under Republican. But the Census Department, Census Bureau, didn't want to follow it. And we were calling congressmen. But when they could not find enough people to do the census, then they started hiring formerly incarcerated people. So it's it's a matter of economics. But then we tell people, you know, you got this X on your back. You know, people are going to be watching. So you have to do exceptional work. And I still, to this day, sometimes wonder did a, is a person reacting to me or reacting to the fact that I've got five felonies? And my wife is the one that really solved that for me. She said, what damn difference does it make? Get over it. You are who you are. And that's what she did. Actually, she got me over that because my wife had never had a speeding ticket in her life. Very middle class. And I told her everything about my past. And people were saying, you going to marry him? And... <laughs> She says, my life, and I'm going to make the choice. And that was the other part. I had made up my mind I wanted to be a writer. I wasn't going to break the law. But when she married me, I said, well, there's no way am I going to give people a chance to say, see, we told you not to marry him. I was never going to embarrass her. So there was no way was I ever going to break the law again. And then life was too good. We, you know, we threw hard, dent of hard work and smart investing and stay at home at night because I'm happy. Uh, turned out pretty well. I mean, so we just have a couple minutes left, and I want to make sure we talk about Chateau Huff. Now, ah. people outside of Cleveland don't know the Huff neighborhood, but in Cleveland, it's renowned for the riots in the 60s. And we call it an uprising. But it uprising. Well, there you go. The white view versus, I mean, the white media versus the private Yes, media. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was the civil rights movement, really. Right. And, exactly. and, and uh, you went back to that area, a tough area of Cleveland, and made it home. But you also build a business there, a winery, a vineyard in Huff. I mean, it almost is mind-blowing. <laughs> yeah, that's that's kind of the result. You get like, a, we named it Chateau Huff, which is a political name. Here's what I mean. If I were to say Chateau Hunting Valley, people, oh, of course. If I were to say Chateau Westlake, well, naturally. You say Chateau Huff, people do a double take. And what <laughs> what we're actually saying is that the land we occupy here in Huff is just as valuable to us as the folks in Hunting Valley, their land is to them. We love our community. Michael White started a renaissance in Huff because the Huff is ideally located between downtown and university circle. And in the 90s, what Blacks were getting over, this whole notion of integration, it's a failed notion. For the most part, Housing integration does not work. And so Blacks said, well, wait a minute, why do we keep chasing whites for integration? They're clearly not interested in it. Why don't we build middle-class homes in our own community? 
and you increase your political clout. Now, I'm an integrationist at heart. I would love for a white person to want to build a home across the street from me. I'd help them do it. I know how to build homes. I, I work with builders. But I'm not going to spin my wheels chasing something that somebody else isn't. So that's why we chose the community of Huff. And we kind of backed into it. We started a nonprofit, Neighborhood Solutions, where we were training people on best practices to help people coming out of prison. I knew all the best practices. I'd lived them. And so we got contracts. My wife was a social worker by profession. And we were put on seminars. We were training people around the state on best practices. You dry the pool up pretty quick. You got everybody trained pretty quick. And so instead of telling people how to do it, we wanted to show people how to do it. And an opportunity came. They were giving out grants called Reimagining Cleveland. It was a federal program. And the tagline was Reimagine Cleveland as a green city on a blue lake. And there was this big, ugly apartment building across the street from us that had just been torn down. And actually, it was a fireman that gave me the idea because the fire station is at the other I live on 66 and Huff, 66 and Chester, the fire station. And so the fireman used to joke with me. He said, what are you going to do, put a swimming pool in there or, or a vineyard? So actually the idea came from a fireman joking with me. I said, let's put in a vineyard. That will get people's attention. We had no plans on to turn it into a winery. But powerful. we thought the, the notion of a vineyard, because I lived in California and visited vineyards, would be unique, and it certainly is. It certainly is. And you have uh, seven bold crisp wines. People can find them at the website, uh, chateauhuff.com, and I'll have a link to that on my website, reginabrett.com. Mansfield, I want to thank you for joining us today. The idea of reimagining your life, you know, we just have a minute here. The, you had to do that. You had to reimagine your life and you're doing that for other people. What's the best tip you can give people when they really are ready to create a new way of life and they want to take a new path? What's your best advice for them? Learn to overcome your fears. And I touched on this earlier. Overcome the fear of failing. And you overcome that by acknowledging the fact, yeah, it's a good chance I'm going to fail. But I'm, resiliency is the strongest character. You know, when I was actually doing credit cards, part of that, I was studying to be an actor in New York. I was doing credit cards, but I was also training as a thespian. And people in show business will tell you, the one who can stand the most rejection is the one that wins. <laughs> no, for real. When you're That's great quality. You're right. Yeah, you're auditioning. You're going up there and getting on a bare stage and auditioning, laying your soul on the line, and rejection can be crushing. So you have to learn how to manage rejection. If you learn how to manage rejection and failure, then you're guaranteed to be a success. Especially as a writer. Every writer can attest to that. Rejection. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, man, so I want to thank you for joining us. What's the best way for people to connect with you? Uh, what's the best website to reach you at? Chateau Huff www.chateauhuff.com or they can email me mansfieldf at gmail okay great and my biggest takeaway today is to fail you know you're going to fail get in there do it and get back up exactly don't let failure throw you don't let it make you fearful of it realize it's the other side of the coin of winning is failure and sometimes it's going to land on heads sometimes it's going to land on tails but don't let it throw you that's beautiful mansfield let me have you close with your answer to this question I ask all my guests. What's the best thing that you do for yourself every day to create a life you love out of the life you have? Take care of God's green earth. There's something 
about communing with nature. The one thing God is not making any more of is dirt, not making any more planet. So even if it's a small plot of land, but find a little small plot of land and dig in the dirt, put something in the ground, take care of God's planet in some kind of way. That's beautiful. Thanks again, Mansell, for joining me. Thank you for having me, Regina. It's been fun. Thanks for listening to Little Detours with Regina Brett. If you want to know more about today's guest and topic, head to my podcast page at reginabrett.com. There you can also subscribe to my email newsletter so you never miss an opportunity to be inspired. For more episodes, you can subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. While you're there, please rate and review my show so we can reach and inspire even more people. Thanks for joining us today. Now go make something possible.